Almighty God, as we number our days, as we consider the time that you have given to us in this world, and know that you have placed us here, uh, particularly in our particular places and lives and callings, but yet without knowledge of the future, knowing that these things are veiled from us, that we know not what will happen this year or this month or even in the next hour. We look to you and to you who is steadfast and mighty and good in all that you do and all that you are. The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. It goes forth and does not return to you void. It accomplishes all you set it to do. And so we pray and ask for your grace that you would speak your word to us this morning in the reading and preaching of it, that you would build us up, that we would be edified and strengthened, that those who do not yet believe and trust in you would be awakened, that they might follow you and, and turn to you in eternal life. Lord, we ask that you would do all that you intend, that you would bless us, your people, that you would shepherd your flock, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please remain standing if you're able, and let's turn our attention again to Titus chapter 1. So picking up um, this book again, having left it for a little bit, and we continue on, on with the qualifications for elders. Um, but I would like to begin uh, again at verse 1, so I'll read starting at the beginning of the letter through verse 9. This is God's word. Let's give our attention to, to it. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. May God bless his word to us. You may be seated. Well, at the end of a year and at the beginning of a new year, uh, many of us um, maybe not all of us, and that's fine, um, but many people like to make lists, right? We review um, the year that passed, um, we look forward to the year ahead, it's, we take a moment and we pause and, and think about uh, what we've done, what we want to do, um, what kind of people we are, what kind of people we want to be. This is a good thing to do, not just at the beginning of the year, but throughout the year, um, to stop and pause and think uh, through 
through what God wants for us and who we are before him. And so, in some ways, this is a nice place to begin with these qualifications for elders. We have a list, a list of things um, that mark out a mature Christian. Now, these, in some ways, apply to all of us, right? There's, um, uh, hopefully, if, if you are a believer, you don't look at any part of this list and say, I don't really care about that, doesn't matter to me. Um, and nevertheless, it does come in a particular context in which Paul gives these qualifications for elders. And I'd like to consider those, you with, the, those with you this morning. We'll start by asking, what is an elder, uh, first of all? What are the qualifications for an elder that Paul lists here? And what does this reveal to us about God? What does it reveal to us about his plan for us, his grace for us? And lastly, how we ought to respond. First, just a little bit of context. Remember that when Paul leaves Titus here in Crete, he leaves him in a situation that is in some ways similar to our own community. There are Christians here on Crete, new communities of people who are following the Lord, and yet they live in a context in a world that doesn't know Jesus, doesn't think it needs to know Jesus, but in many ways thinks that it is fine just on its own, that it can live according to its own will, its own desire, according to its own works. This, of course, is not true and ultimately damning. To live apart from God, to live on our own, to live according to our own will, our own way, even when it generally looks moral and good and is approved by our neighbors, is ultimately not good. Anything that is done apart from faith, the scripture says, is ultimately sin. Because it's done in rebellion to God, it's done apart from him, it's done saying to the the God who made everything, who made you, I don't need you. I don't care about you. I can do what I want when I want. That kind of rebellion is not, uh, does not earn us anything good. It's sin. And the scriptures tell us that the wages of sin is death. And so what God does is he comes into our lives, he comes into those, uh, that state of idolatry and rebellion, and he reveals to us a good word. He reveals to us a word of salvation that says, look to me, depend on me, and I'll give you everything as a free gift. A gift that, of course, is very costly to God because he gives his own son who dies on a cross to forgive us our sins. But this message that comes into this world uh, is a good one. It's a good one that causes us to turn by God's efficacious grace, his effective grace, his powerful word that speaks and brings forth life. It causes us to turn from that rebellion to a life that looks to him, a life that is marked by righteousness, a life that produces men like this, amazingly. The qualifications here are not of people who are sort of born into perfection, the mark, uh, the, these marks and qualifications here are of men who God has given his grace to and matured and forgiven. These qualifications that are listed to us are in many ways, they set before us God's standard and his law, but they also are marks of his grace, and we ought to keep that in mind when Paul leaves Titus here and begins to speak uh, through him and, do, and, and God uses Titus uh, in, according to his work, it is ultimately an act of grace. He is providing for these flocks, for these Christians, and he will provide for Titus all that he needs uh, to do his work. Let's keep that in mind as we begin uh, to look at this list together. Well, first of all, What is an elder? What is an elder? An elder, uh, the elders of churches are kind of like elders of tribes. They are men appointed to lead the congregations of Christ under him as the chief shepherd. The letter to the Hebrews speaks of their responsibilities and how 
uh, Christians ought to relate to those responsibilities in this way. This is Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do with this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So here we have sort of both sides of that coin, right? Our relationship with one another as those who are led and those who are leaders, both together under Christ. What is the calling that is expressed there? Well, to those who are led, of course, obey and submit. Um, Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And to those who are called to lead, the command implicit here is they are overseers. They are to keep watch over the souls of those who have been entrusted to him, to them. And it is said that they will have to give an account. This work of oversight, then, um, a word that is used in verse 7 of our passage, um, reminds us that these two um, These two jobs and these two offices are the same. The overseer and the elder um, are the same office. They are the same, uh, it is the same job described in two different ways. Another word, and there are others as well, is they are uh, God's stewards, right? They have a responsibility that is given to them. Much like Paul describes at the beginning when he talks about himself as an apostle, he does not stand on his own authority, right? What does he say? Look at verse 1. Paul here describes himself as a servant, another word, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He works with that which with he, with, he works according to what he has been entrusted with. That's verse 3, by the command of God our Savior. So, what is an elder? An elder is one who watches over souls. Leaders are called um, to oversee, to uh, provide oversight. And that happens at three levels, which I'll say just briefly and then move on, but just to give us some perspective. First, oversight and care, uh, leadership um, happens at an individual level one-to-one level, each individual member of the flock. We remember the parable Jesus gives of going after the one lost sheep. Jesus doesn't just look at his body as a sort of general mass of stuff. He knows each and every individual member. He gifts each and every individual member. And so the shepherding that happens, even through his under-shepherds, happens at that individual level. Another level that happens is at the level of the individual church, right? Titus is to appoint elders in every town, right? There are throughout Crete, there are to be individual churches with elders over each uh, church. I'm seeing to the corporate needs of that body, helping that body maintain its core work of divine worship, mutual edification, and gospel witness. What are the best means for that? How do we pursue that? How do we move together as a body in faithfulness to the Lord? The elders are responsible for that. And then the third level, the individual, individual, individual level, the individual church level, and then the larger regional church level. These churches are not just disconnected churches, but they are collected together. Sometimes Paul will speak, for example, to the Corinthians, to the, uh, the churches throughout Corinth or throughout Ephesus or throughout Galatia, and he speaks to all of these individual congregations together. Um, the elders have this joint responsibility as they come together uh, to oversee the needs of the regional church. At that level, um, we, we use the word presbytery to describe the body of collected elders that oversee the regional church. That word presbytery comes from the Greek word presbyter, which means elder. It's a collection of elders, much like we see at the Jerusalem Council, when the apostles and elders come together to oversee and lead uh, the larger church through through a time of great difficulty. So these are the three levels at which uh, elders operate. 
uh, these three levels which elders operate, and they come with a whole variety of responsibilities that are described a little bit here and throughout other scriptures. Now, we won't go through those today because the job before us, uh, for me, is to uh, look at the qualifications in particular. But as you think through these qualifications, you'll see that they match the work that they are called to do, this work of of oversight, this work of leadership, the work of caring uh, for souls. They are to lead the sheep in the way they ought to go. They are to lead the flocks of Christ as they fulfill their primary callings. They are to guard the flocks and to guide the flocks. The devil, Peter tells us, prowls around like a roaring lion waiting for someone, some sheep, to devour. The job of the shepherds is to protect and keep them, to lead them into paths of righteousness. So who is qualified to do that work? This is, this is how then we come to these qualifications. And we could spend one sermon, uh, right, per qualification. So I can't say everything and address every question. Um, I'll move fast, which will be perhaps an unwise decision considering that some of you are sleepy. Um, but uh, we are going to do our best, and I'll ask that you pay attention as best you can, maybe take a list, um, think about things, and if you have questions, feel free to contact me uh, throughout the week. All right, let's go. All right, first one, if anyone is above reproach, this is a broad qualification that covers every area of life. Paul could potentially just stop here, um, but of course he doesn't. He gives us more explanation, but this is a very important one. It does not require that a man be perfect. No man is perfect. It does not require that he was and is and always will be sinless. Only the Lord Jesus Christ meets that category. The Lord charges um, men, however, to be above reproach, and it's very simple. It just means a man of integrity. It's the kind of person that we look at and we say, that's a good man. That's, it's as simple as that. It's a man who lives with character and integrity in his life, in secret and in public, in private and in public. The second, the husband of one wife, Uh, a a more literal translation here would be something like a one-woman man. Uh, This refers to a faithfulness of a man towards his wife. Now, we, of course, know that uh, being married is not a qualification uh, for ministry. How do we know this? Well, of course, the Lord, our Lord, was not married. Um, Neither was the Apostle Paul. And in Corinthians, Paul explicitly says there are advantages to ministry when you are not married, right? All things being equal, it's a plus uh, to be be single, Paul says. Um, He he desires it uh, for everyone that he be as as he is. Um, Nevertheless, so although we know that a married state is not required, um, those who are married must be faithful to their wives. We can broadly say that this also uh, refers to faithfulness in all duties to which one has committed himself, right? If, one, if you commit yourself uh, to something, um, something of value and something important, right, then one must fulfill those promises. The next um, is that children are faithful. And if you're following along in, in um, this particular translation, you'll see that I'm taking the footnote version um, of this translation rather than uh, the one um, that is in your text. There are various translations of this. And why take that translation instead? Well, I think it's, it's, um, I think it's more accurate. Um, for one, the word can refer uh, to both, um, that the, it could, could mean that the children are Christians, or it can mean just in a general sense that they are faithful. And I, so first of all, there are two translation possibilities. The question is, which one is the right one? Um, I think the latter is to be preferred for a few reasons. Um, one, um, 
No one can control the salvation of any other person. We know this um, from all kinds of reasons, personal experience being one, um, but uh, even more importantly, the word of God tells us that it's the Lord who does the work of salvation, not man. No man or person can control what happens in another person's soul. Um, and, of course, uh, that, that, is, that is up up to God. A second thing is that what we see here uh, is the text itself gives to us the instruction in how to understand it. So if you look, it says um, his children are faithful and then basically describes what that is, right? It, does, it says not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, and that, so, basically, the bar is, is not that his children are these sort of super excellent, perfer, perfect kids, um, but that they are not open to these, these basic charges, insubordination and, and debauchery. Debauchery being giving oneself openly and frequently uh, to sinful desires, especially sexual ones. Yes, the uh, reason, then, is given... Um, that is, uh, in another passage in Timothy, that a man needs to be able to, who can't manage his own house, should not be put in charge of managing the Lord's house. And so because of all of these reasons that are given, and these theological reasons given the salvation, uh, giving issue, with regard to issues of salvation, um, we can know then that the right translation here is faithful, not necessarily to the Lord, although we all would desire that, but in their own home. Do the children respect their father? Do they, do they live and, and follow him? No, kids, my kids, our kids, no one is perfect. Again, that's not the standard here. We are looking simply for a good man who manages his own household, not perfectly, uh, but well. Let's continue on. Um, he, as we continue on, we see that he must not be arrogant. He must not be arrogant. Arrogant, of course, requires humility, and many men do not have it. They think they already know what to do, and they think everybody else simply needs to get on board. They don't need to listen. They don't need to understand. They are seemingly unable to put themselves in someone else's shoes to um, empathize and, and understand the suffering and perspective of others. That's an, uh, that's an arrogant man. A good uh, elder cannot be arrogant. Um, he must be a good listener and able uh, to humble himself in his own preferences and perspectives. He must be a learner, right? Ultimately, he must submit to God, right? An arrogant person who, does, uh, who is arrogant over others in his life is often and perhaps always arrogant towards God as well. Quick-tempered. He must not be quick-tempered. Anger, of course, is a godly emotion. Why would we say that? Well, because God himself gets angry. So we can know it is a godly emotion uh, because uh, the scriptures describe God's, God's wrath, um, God's anger. However, what do, what do the scriptures say about God's anger? It says he is slow to anger. He is slow to anger. And many other things that we could consider another time. But here, he, we can think about this simply. He is slow to anger. Quick-tempered people, um, perhaps you know this in yourself, are often controlled by what they want. They know what they want, and they want it really bad, and they want it now, and anything that gets in their way, boom, they snap, and they snap, <laughs> and they snap inside, and they snap at you, and they, they, they cut you off, and, and they're quick. They're quick to be angry because they're controlled in their hearts by these idols, idols that demand that this thing or that thing must be this or that way, and when they don't get what they want, they fly off the handle. Being slow to anger, as we think about it um, in light of who the Lord is and how he demonstrates uh, anger, uh, humanly speaking, he always acts in a way that is measured, right? In a way that is proportionate, in a way that aligns perfectly uh, with righteousness. 
It is also tempered by being patient and loving and understanding. One of the things that often helps me with my anger is remembering this one thing. I think to myself, what if God corrected me for every single thing I did wrong? Imagine that in your own lives. Every thought, every word, everything, everything that you just didn't say quite right and could have said a little better. Every thought that wasn't 100% true and comprehensive and totally integrated into a perfect system of ideas, you got corrected for. Every emotion that was not calibrated properly, even just a little bit. Christopher? What have I told you? How have I showed you? Have you not read? What if he did that every single time? Now, there's, he would have every right to do that, right? And he would be perfect in every single correction. There wouldn't be a single thing he would ever tell me that would be a little off or not quite right. Everything would be right. He'd always be right. I'd always be wrong. And yet he doesn't do that. Is that because he doesn't care? He obviously cares. He wants me to, he wants us, right, to mature and to grow in him, to grow in holiness. He wants me to be this kind of man that is right here, and he is going to discipline me. He is going to correct me, to help form me in this way. And yet he's not quick-tempered, is he? Isn't that a good thing? And remembering that, remember how he is towards us, we can be that way towards others. We ought to be anyway. Next, he must not be a drunkard. The scripture says we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but not controlled by alcohol or other substances. We are to be sober-minded people and self-controlled. It's impossible to do that when you are addicted to alcohol or other things, as Christians, we are to be watchful, ready, um, clear-headed. And you can't watch over your own hearts, much less over the hearts of others, if you're asleep on the job and giving yourselves over to sinful desires. Which leads us to the next one, violence. He must not be a violent man. Drunkenness often leads to other sins, violence included. Remember the story of, of Herod um, inciting his lust and then uh, ordering the head of John the Baptist on a platter. A lot of that because of a lot of alcohol. It's a sad example, and it's one of the things that happens when men are ruled by uh, sensuality, when they're ruled by um, these kinds of things. An elder of the Lord must not uh, be uh, a drunkard. Um, he must not be violent. Um, he must be self-controlled and uh, a good tool in the Lord's hands. He must not be greedy for gain. An elder is called to lay down his life like Christ did. He is to ultimately be concerned about the kingdom of God, not the things of this world. He is also responsible for worldly things, if I could put it that way, um, where uh, we, we rent and we use this physical building. There are offerings, right, uh, donations that are made to the church uh, that elders are responsible for and, and those under them as well. How does he handle these things? How does he act in the distribution of those, of those gifts? He must be a faithful man. Um, Judas, perhaps, was greedy for gain, and that's why he accepted those 30 pieces of silver and gave up everything. Judas did not lead himself well, and he did not lead others well. An elder must not be greedy for gain. People who lead well, lead well when there is trust. He must be a trustworthy man, and he must seek first the kingdom of of righteousness. A man's greed will always distort the gospel. The flip side to this is the next one, hospitality. Perhaps the opposite of being greedy for gain or a, an expression of that anyway. Instead of 
taking and looking for every opportunity to get. He is a man who gives and looks for opportunities to give. He gives his time, his place, his food, his love. He opens up his life and his resources to others. I want to just mention, perhaps as a side note, that so much discipleship happens in the context of hospitality. Over uh, food, over coffee, sitting on a back porch, going out for a walk. These are the places where confessions are made, instructions are given, commitments are formed. A man is encouraged. Hospitality is not only an expression of love, it builds contexts for more service and for more love, for fellowship, for community, for discipleship. An elder must be hospitable. He must be a lover of good. This is similar to upright, which comes in a moment. He must align his heart with the Lord's, the God of all good, his tastes, his ideas, his life must be shaped by that which is good. He must be self-controlled. You might be saying, didn't we already talk about this? Yes, we did, multiple times. And it's worth noting that Paul keeps bringing it up over and over and over again, sometimes explicitly by saying self-controlled, and sometimes in sort of alternate forms um, like we've, we've looked at. And you won't be surprised, perhaps, to hear that it's going to come up more times uh, throughout the book of Titus. Look for that, that theme. Self-controlled, self-controlled, self-controlled. Why is that? Well, it's because ultimately leadership starts from the inside. You can't manage other people. You can't lead other people unless you first lead yourself. It's a core truth that simply must be followed. It's easy to boss other people around. Do as I say, not as I do, right? <laughs> um, but that's not the way it really works. That's not how true leadership is actually effected. He must be self-controlled, not only because this is the beginning of all leadership, this is the beginning of, of helping others, growing others, maturing others, but it also protects others and protects oneself. It protects the witness of the gospel. There's many, many reasons. It's worth considering them. Upright he must be, as I said, a good man. He must seek after the things of the Lord and live his life with integrity. The word holy gives, I think, a plus to that in a way, an additional level of understanding. He's not a, a, an elder, a qualified elder is not just a good man, he's a godly man. What's the difference between those two things? Well, as I mentioned earlier, it's possible to be a good person in the sense that we talk about in a colloquial way, right? Not ultimately, you know, before God and his righteousness, but, you know, the, the, the guy at the bank who takes care of you and helps you and is honest with you. He's a good man, right? In that kind of sense, um, in many other people that we speak about, it's possible to, to be a good neighbor, neighbor, to pay your taxes, to follow the law, to take care of other people, and yet do it all for yourself, ultimately, and your own reasons and according to your own way. A holy man is different. He's not just good, but he does everything for God. He does everything out of faith in God. He knows that he is empowered by God, strengthened by God, used by God. He is set apart for God, and that is his chief end. He lives not for himself, but for the Lord. He is one who has been set apart. He has been one, he is one who is, who is holy, not just by his, his actions, but by God's actions in his life. He is disciplined. We are, we are nearing the end. He is disciplined. Paul, in various places throughout the letters, calls the churches to be in good order. 
And when they are in good order, he commends them. And he says, this is an example of God's spirit working in you. Good order is a mark of God's work because God is a God of order. Disorder often brings chaos, fear, mistakes, opportunity for sin. And so a man who is leading the churches into good order and out of good order must himself be a disciplined person. Now, discipline does not mean inflexible. It does not mean a tight fist. Good order, in fact, requires flexibility in the right places. Good order requires margin, it requires space, it requires being able to move. If, I, if you take a, a human body, let's say, and you put everything in the right place and then freeze it, it's going to be just as bad as if it had no bones at all, right? Useless, hurting, right? Good order means knowing where to be flexible and where to be strong, and this is true in a person's own life as well as within the church. A man must be disciplined. Finally, we read that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He must not be a person, and one who is called to lead the church according to the word of God, must have a, a, must have a, a firm faith in the word of God. A firm faith is what grounds generous love. A firm faith is what grounds holiness. A firm faith is what grounds good order. All of these spring from faith in the Lord. That's how we receive these things, which are ultimately gifts. And these gifts are only received by putting our trust in him. The values and all of these good things that mark these kind of men these ones that we will return to over and over and that our elders represent, these come from a place of faith. Secondly, they were, this command to be sound, in, uh, to be um, firm in the faith, uh, relates to the job that he is to do. It says that he must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. If all of these things spring from faith and sound doctrine in the word of God in his own life, that's how he will lead the church. He will lead the church according to the word of God, and so he must know it. He must be strong in it. No one knows it perfectly. No one is infinitely strong in the word of God, but he must be strong enough to be able to lead, to give instruction soundly, to rebuke those who contradict it. As one who shepherds then, he leads and he protects. We see that in this. When he says that he is to give instruction and give instruction and to rebuke, we see both of those aspects. He leads and he protects. He guides the sheep in the way they ought to go and when they are in danger, either from predators or from their own foolish actions, he knows how to warn, how to discipline, and how to guard according to God's word. So these are the qualifications for elder. I want you, uh, as you sort of perhaps feel the weariness in your body at hearing such a list, as you sort of think in your mind, I can barely remember of all of that, as you think, that's a long list, let that sit with you. It is a long list. It is a high bar. In some ways, it is uh, overwhelming. I can look at this list, as I did many times in preparing for this, and examine my own heart, and I see ways in which I need to grow. I see ways in which my life needs to mature and improve in every single one of these categories, in some way or another, some more than others. And I suspect that as you look at this list, you find the same thing. This is what always happens when we are confronted with the law of God. It exposes our needs. It exposes our needs, and in particular, our need 
for him. So how do we respond to this? Well, don't blow it off. Right? That's a terrible way to respond to this. Oh, that's too much. I've got a life to live and move on. We respond to this by being honest, by examining our hearts, by looking to the Lord and saying, as we might do at the beginning of a new year and other times throughout our lives, even daily, where am I at, Lord? Where have I fallen short? And can you please help me to grow? Forgive me of my sins. Help me to grow in, in and according to your grace and by the power of it. That's a Christian response. And here's the good news for you, beloved. And for you two elders, right? I'm not supposed to preach to anyone individually, but hey, yeah, sometimes you have to. For you, my brothers, and to me, and to those of you who may be future elders and servants of Christ's church, we must depend on the Lord. We must look to him in everything. We must see him and his heart for us as we care for the sheep. And as we consider our, the own ways in which we need to grow let us also consider the, the good things that God has already done. Let's consider the grace that he promises to give in the future. When we confront this list, I speak to, this, to all of you, when we confront this list, it's not just these bare principles like, that come to us out of nowhere. They are requirements from a good and holy God who has also spoken to us a word of grace. He has also spoken to us and said, I promise to help you, to grow you, to lead you. And as you put your faith in me, I will do these things. And we have proof for that right here. Titus is proof of that. Paul is proof of that. These qualifications are proof of God's work in us, his gracious work in us. When Jesus came into this world and he died on a cross to forgive us our sins, he didn't just sort of, you know, open the door to the prison and say, well, go enjoy your life. No, he called us unto himself that we might enter into eternal life, blessed life, holiness. And he doesn't just walk away and say, you know, pat you on the back, best be to y'all, good luck. No, he promises to care for us, to love us, to protect us, to guard us, to be our shepherd. A good shepherd, a perfect shepherd. And he's doing that shepherding right here, right now. The work that Jesus did on the cross didn't just sort of fall apart. He's still bringing about its ends. He's still blessing us. He's still leading us, which means we can look to him. How do we see that here? Well, what do we see him doing here in this passage? What do we see Jesus accomplishing and fulfilling his promises? Well, he's encouraging our brothers to rise to the challenge. He's setting before them the clear need to grow. He's calling them to a life of holiness, and that's good for them, and it's good for the whole church. Jesus is doing that. The Spirit of God is doing that. He's also protecting us, isn't he? What's our chief shepherd doing with a passage like this? As he rules on his ascended throne and speaks this word through his spirit, he is protecting us from men who would put themselves before us who are not truly called of God. He is openly and transparently, transparently proclaiming before every single person exactly what the qualifications for ruling elders are and teaching elders there's no guessing here. There's no wondering, what is he really supposed to be? What was that job description? Everybody knows it. The Lord himself told it to us, which means we, uh, we have protection. There are many other things I, I want to point, I'd like to point your attention to, but I want to end um, by reading a passage from Ezekiel, because it's, it's getting later. Um, this is Ezekiel chapter uh, 34. Ezekiel 34. If, if you'd like to turn there with me, you may. Um, or you can uh, simply listen along with me. 
One of the most, um, I'm going to say impactful on it. There's a better word than that. But uh, one, of the mo- one of the sermons, I'll say, that has made a, a big impression on me in my own preparation and training for ministry was one that Ross Graham gave. You may, some of you may know him. He was our former um, secretary for home missions, um, church planning, and church extension. And he preached on the qualifications for uh, being an elder from this passage, which is actually kind of like the other side of the coin, right? It's all in the negative. Instead of saying this is what he ought not or what he ought to be in so many positive ways mostly, here we have examples of what a bad shepherd is. And it's really powerful and remarkable. And so I'd, I'd like to end with this. Not only hearing uh, sort of the, anti, the image of the anti-shepherd, but also the promises of our chief shepherd. So that as we leave from here today, whoever you are, an elder, a, a potential elder, a lay person, that we would all look to the chief shepherd and his promises, uh, that, uh, his promises that he has fulfilled already and is f- continues to fulfill for us. So let's hear God's word uh, as we conclude now from Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered over all the mountains on an every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep and has been, that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountains of heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Isn't the Lord good? Paul says in Ephesians 4 that after the Lord died for us, he ascended for us. And after he ascended for us, he poured out gifts and graces upon his church. And those gifts were apostles and prophets and teachers and shepherds and people to lead his flocks. People that he filled with his Holy Spirit to not be like these shepherds, but to be true shepherds, ruling and, and, and loving and serving in his name.
as we see the work that God does in our lives, in the lives of others, in the lives of our churches, we ought to give him praise. And as we see the needs in our own lives to grow and to be strengthened, the need for more servants, the need for more churches, there's only one place to look. There's only one, one God to whom we must pray, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is ruling for us and taking care of us and shepherding us in every way. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that as we consider these qualifications that you would strengthen us all in them. We ask that over this next year, this church would mature and grow, that old habits and sins and addictions and struggles would be put more and more to death, and that new life uh, and strength and righteousness would be brought forth in us. And as these things happen, Lord, we know that they will happen when we look to you, when we seek you and your strength and your grace. We also ask, Lord, that as, as these things, as we grow and as we mature, as we struggle and fight and press on, that you um, would be gracious and gentle with us, that you would be merciful when we fall and when we have setbacks. We ask also, Lord, that you would receive all the praise and glory, that as your light shines more brightly in us and through us, that people would see it and, and give you praise, that they would be drawn to you and to life in you, that we, might, uh, that we might all follow you together, rejoicing and praising you above all things, above all people, above all creation. We ask, Lord, that um, you would also bring for us uh, more uh, leaders, uh, not any kind of leaders, but godly leaders, qualified leaders, um, both in ordained and unordained capacities, Lord, um, we ask for this blessing that we might grow and uh, grow in you. We also ask for the forgiveness of our sins, for the ways in which we have fallen short. Please guide us, Lord, and, and help us um, in all these ways. Thank you for being our chief shepherd. Help us to keep our eyes fixed always on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.